All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the blessing of the first angel's message that we've seen already. I pray that you'd bless us as we continue today and into tomorrow. And uh, God, I pray for clarity on your plan and your goals for humanity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've dealt with the everlasting gospel. We've dealt with fear God and give glory to Him, um, living a life that we would want to honor Him uh, and fear to offend Him. And now we're going to deal with the idea of the hour of His judgment has come. What does it mean to live in the midst of the judgment? Um, It's the investigative judgment that's being referred to here, which I'm sure you probably know. Uh, This is certainly present truth when it says the hour of His judgment has come. Ellen White states clearly that this message was being preached in 1844, right? That God was preparing people to realize that this is relevant right now. And we even see this. Uh, If you remember William Miller, he had this endearing statement he made um, in his conversion where he said, in Jesus, I found a friend. If you remember, if you haven't heard that in William Miller's conversion story, he was a deist and then eventually his life was spared, just trying to figure out what was going on. And he becomes a Christian, but he found a relationship with Jesus that is in harmony with what we talked about in the first angel's message. And this was an emphasis in his own preaching and what he was sharing, um, that in Jesus he found a friend, which is important because there are prophetic fulfillments of the three angels' messages. Um, Chronologically, this began in 1844. Uh, Both two messages were actually being preached during that season of calling people out of uh, other movements into this prophetic movement of destiny and so forth. But... um, so in the statement, the hour of his judgment has come, is implying that something has shifted, right, in the cosmos. Um, all right, so we're going to look at the kind of two aspects of the sanctuary service. There was the daily service where sin was transferred into the sanctuary, okay? So this is not to scale, so leave me alone. <laughs> Draw it with what? Oh. It is. Never fails. So the daily services, right? Bob, you know, because people are camping on the east and the no. Well, anyway. I say it and then I just undid it. Anyway, so Bob commits a transgression. Bob takes his lamb. And they walk, they take the walk of shame to the sanctuary, right? And Bob comes here with Frank the Lammy, and he's got the priest here with his hat or something. And when Bob comes and confesses his sin over the animal and kills the animal himself, what does the priest do? Does anyone know? So he catches the blood in a bowl. Then he brings the blood where? What altar? Uh, actually, he comes up here. So he puts some on the horns of the altar, and he sprinkles the blood on the veil. And when God looks through the veil to Bob, 
what, what God now sees is, is a layer of blood, right? Something is covering Bob. Uh, atonement has been made for Bob. This was that daily service, right? This idea of confessing and that sin goes into the sanctuary. It's transferred into the sanctuary. And this is where Jesus' ministry as a lamb is represented. So we're going to look at Jesus as a lamb and a priest and why all this matters in the context of the judgment, okay? So that's the daily service where sin was transferred into the sanctuary and Jesus is the lamb. And he also administers this sacrifice on your behalf as the priest, okay? He's the two main characters of the sanctuary service. He's the sacrifice and he's the priest that administers the sacrifice or that mediates the sacrifice, okay? He fills both roles and you're getting slides for all this, okay? The yearly service, so on the daily, I don't know how to write sideways. I don't know how you girls do this. Daily, okay, not dairy, daily. Um, the sin is being transferred into the sanctuary. But the yearly service, okay, is when sin is being transferred out. And eventually it's placed upon the head of the scapegoat. Uh, and it's carried out into the wilderness and dies, okay? Um, so the yearly service was that, that record of sin that had been compiling over the course of the year, right? So once Bob was forgiven of that sin, but there was still a record of it in the sanctuary. It wasn't being held against him, but there was still a record. But on the Day of Atonement, the yearly service, all of that record was cleansed out of the sanctuary, and it was such a, a means of celebration because it was evident that God has fully and finally dealt with the sin problem and separated us from our sins. We've talked about that before, right? So that's the second phase of atonement, and this is where Jesus' priestly role is, is necessary, okay? So this is the lamb, this is the priest, okay? Jesus is filling both of those roles. And this idea of the Day of Atonement being a biblical teaching, uh, it's found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 9 and 40. We're told that the earthly sanctuary was a copy of what was happening in the heavens. Uh, it was built according to that pattern. Leviticus 16 is the type that explains the anti-type. So it was the... Uh, the illustrative tool of what was actually happening in heaven that was the fulfillment or the anti-type of that. Uh, Daniel 7, 10. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, um, after he sees the different kingdoms and the little horn, then he sees that there are books that are open in heaven. A court is seated before the second coming. In Daniel chapter 7, the investigative judgment is talked about. That's what it's alluding to, that there's a judgment happening before the advent of Jesus. Okay, sometimes we call that a pre-advent judgment. Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days in the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Uh, when that phrase sanctuary is cleansed is used to a Jew, they know a judgment is happening. Uh, and then in Daniel chapter 9, we see when the 70 weeks and 2,300 days begin. We're just looking to see this is not some, if you ever wrestle with, you know, like the investigative judgment, if people say like, that's just something Ella White came up with, so you didn't look like losers when you thought Jesus was coming in 1844. That's not true. First of all, it wasn't Seventh-day Adventists that thought Jesus was coming in 1844. You know why? They didn't exist. It was Methodists and Baptists and other Protestants at that stage. There were no Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventist Church was incorporated in 1863. Okay, it was like 19 years later. So we didn't exist yet. So it wasn't Seventh-day Adventists that believed that. It was Baptists and Methodists and so forth. People generally don't like that answer, by the way, when you give it to them. But it's true, okay? So this is not something that Ellen White cooked up. This is a biblical teaching. A great resource for this, by the way, if you want to write this down, is 1844 Made Simple by Clifford Goldstein. That book is dynamite.
1844 Made Simple by Clifford Goldstein. Hands down, probably the best user-friendly resource to communicate from the Bible why we believe in the uh, investigative judgment in 1844. Solid, solid resource, okay? In Hebrews 8, we're told that Jesus is the minister of the true tabernacle in heaven and that the earthly temple is just a copy or a shadow of the one in heaven. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood, just like what was happening in the Day of Atonement, uh, except not just like because it wasn't the priest's own blood, it was an animal, but you get the idea. In Revelation chapter 10, we see the bitter disappointment is alluded to of October 22, 1844, and they're told to prophesy again after that disappointment. And uh, someone turned there. Someone's got like the New King James or something. Turn there, Re- uh, Revelation chapter 10, and I forget what verse it is. Let's find out. It's giving you big picture stuff. We're not going to go knee deep in this because we're going to have classes on these later, but it'd be good to deepen the impression here. Revelation 10, verse 11. Who got it? Uh, we'll read yours. We'll see what it says. I just don't know how it reads. Revelation 10, 11. We'll read yours. We'll see what it sounds like. Revelation 10, 11. Nice and loud, please. Does it say before? Okay, good. Uh, someone read New King James. That one's actually more accurate in that, in that verse. Revelation 10, verse 11. Somebody read that in the King, New King James. Go ahead, Owen. And he said to me, yeah, he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Do you see the difference? You're going to prophesy about or you're going to prophesy before? Uh, in other translations, it says prophesy to. And what it's saying is not New King James. That's not the way it reads in the original language. So they're being given another call to prophesy to the nations. So you've gone through a bitter disappointment, but I'm calling you to go forward and prophesy again before the world. That's the premise, uh, and that's the teaching there in Revelation chapter 10 of the Great Disappointment. So prophesy again to the world, okay? Uh, In Revelation chapter 11, we see that the dead are judged and the ark is seen. Uh, is the ark a significant form of furniture or piece of furniture in the investigative judgment when people are being judged? Yes. Okay. Uh, in Revelation 14, we see it in the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Right? Uh, in that part, obviously. It's not the full first angel's message. I already said that. Revelation 15 and verse 8, there's a time in which the uh, probation closes. Right? No more sin can be put into the sanctuary. The doors of the, of the, the sanctuary are closed. Um, which is what happens at the conclusion of the investigative judgment. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, in that moment we're told that let him who is righteous remain righteous still. Let him who is wicked remain wicked still. Right? Whatever position they're in at that stage, they will remain in that position. So I'm just showing you guys that there's a big biblical picture for this teaching. It's not just we saw Daniel 8:14 and tried to find ways to not look like losers because Jesus didn't come right in 1844. There's, there's a big holistic picture that we're, we have a solid biblical foundation for this premise. Yeah? Okay. But here's the good news. Even on that day of atonement, the morning and evening sacrifice for unknown sins took place. Okay. Even on the day of atonement. So that the morning and evening sacrifice was for the sins the people did not know that they had committed. This is different than what Bob was doing. Okay. This was on top of that. In the morning, the priest would offer an animal 
and there was no confession made over this animal. This animal was sacrificed as a means of atoning for the sins of the camp that the people did not know that they had committed because God's presence was in this camp, right? They happen again in the evenings. When you hear the morning and evening sacrifices, that's what's being alluded to, which is amazing when you think about it. Because again, this implies that God is looking for reasons to get you in, not looking for reasons to keep you out. Because I've met many Adventists who are so freaked out because the investigative judgment is happening right now. And what if there are sins that I don't know I've committed? Right? They're like beside themselves. They're so stressed out. Well, God made provision for that in the sanctuary service. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do a heart searching. But if, we don't, if we're completely ignorant of things that we have done that have violated the law of God... God, in His great love and mercy and desire to see you saved, already made provision for this, which is good news. Super good news. That's, that's one of the things that can give you boldness in the judgment, is the righteousness and faithfulness and love of Jesus for the lost. Yes? Yeah, at, at my church, um, when, when was this? Probably five years ago or more. Um, we were in our Sabbath squad, and we, we, we learned something about how, I don't know, basically they were telling us that we should like, be praying about like to, for God to bring to our, our members any sins that we commit in the past or else they won't be forgiven. So like I would just like pray and pray every night like Lord just help me remember the sins, help me remember the sins, and I really like slowly worry about it. Yeah, it's stressful, isn't it? Do you think God wants you to live in that type of a headspace? No, and that's not a biblical teaching. It's because they don't understand the sanctuary, right? They they understand that God has an expectation, but they have no idea what God's provision was in harmony with his expectations. Does that make sense? This is why righteousness by faith is so important and, and the Christ our righteousness is so important to bring before our people. And people found freedom and healing at the preaching of Jones and Wagner. And they, did, they never downplayed the standard. They showed God's faithfulness to equip man to reach the standard. And that's so important because there are some people in our camp who just say, no, that doesn't really matter because God loves you. Well, it's because God loves you that he sent Jesus to live a life that you haven't lived to empower you to live that life by his strength. Right? That doesn't mean there's not a role we play. That, that's unfair to communicate that because that, what you're basically saying is Jesus came to show off and he did something that you could never do and don't even bother trying. And then what you're really saying is the gospel doesn't work because it can clear out past debt, but it can't set you free from sin, which also is offensive to Jesus. So th- this balanced picture that Jones and Wagner gave is important, but Matthew's story is case in point. There are people who are miserable and in bondage right now because they don't understand what the morning and eating sacrifice was all about, that God was working for them and not against them. Dr. Leslie Harding, a specialist on the sanctuary, says this, one of our our scholars in the church. He says, the daily services of the tabernacle went on every day of the year without cessation. They never stopped, even on the weekly Sabbath, as well as during the the pilgrim feasts. By God's specific command, the Tommy, those morning and eating sacrifices, was never to be omitted. The sacrifices connected with these festive days were presented in addition okay, to the morning and evening sacrifices. This was also true the Day of Atonement. The constant morning and evening sacrifices embraced the special ceremonies of the day like two loving arms. The daily was thus the very foundation of the entire sacrificial system, and nothing was, to, was permitted to interfere with it. It pointed directly to the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would be as sensible to omit the daily from the worship of Israel as it would be to take the cross from that of Christians. The liturgy of the morning was repeated in the evening. Again, it's Dr. Leslie Harding with Jesus in his sanctuary, which is really, really helpful for us to recognize. So imagine being an Israelite 
when you wake up in the morning and you look towards the tabernacle and you see smoke wafting off of that altar, you're immediately reminded of the fact that God is working for me, that God is making a way for me and preparing for me and things I don't even know about. Okay, and this is what it should do for us. So that, that's, that's cared for. And so this is where our view of the atonement in the sanctuary sets us apart from any other Protestants. Right, we had this view of the two-phased atonement, the daily and the yearly, that everything was not accomplished at the cross, that there was a work that Jesus did and is doing right now that's part of the plan of salvation. It wasn't just that Jesus died for us. Jesus also lived a life that we have not lived and is in heaven ministrating and providing that life to us through the means of His Holy Spirit as we speak, which is super important, okay? So the investigative judgment isn't just about the work of Jesus and cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. It's also a time in which the same high priest is sanctifying you to ensure that you can stand without mediation, okay? So he's not just doing a work of cleansing the heavenly sanctuary up above. He's also doing a work of preparing and changing our own hearts down here right now. And we don't talk about this as much. Right? We talk about what's happening in heaven, and you better figure it out down here because he's trying to clean up up there, and you're messing it up. This is kind of the implication that we have from a lot of our teachings on this, that everything's happening in heaven, and you better get your act together because he's trying to clean things, and there's going to come a day when he can't clean, and you're going to be lost. And there's a statement that's used by Ellen White that people used in a really unfortunate way, and I want to look at this, this idea of mediation. Great Controversy 425. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. How many people have heard this quote before? How many people have been scared to death of this quote? Okay, so their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there's to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin amongst God, among God's people on earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14. What's she talking about? The three angels' messages. So one of the things that we need to be communicating in the three angels' messages is God's intention of this sanctuary cleansing process and what that looks like and what God wants from His people and what He's doing for His people. But we don't really hear a lot about that. We, we jump straight to the point, there's not going to be a mediator, you better get it in there quick or the door is closing. That's basically the undertone that we get. But how much hope does that give, first of all? And how much practical advice is given on how to get there? None. Work harder. I was preaching an event a few years ago, I won't tell you where, I was preaching at an event a few years ago, and this guy who works with a group of young people, I won't say what he does uh, or what group he's affiliated with, I was, pre I was tasked to preach the message of Christ, our righteousness, at this conference. There were a bunch of young people there. And I'm going in on some of these issues, and the guy's getting a little cringy uh, about the way in which I'm preaching the gospel. And he had a few conversations with me and recognized he wasn't really getting anywhere. So he talked with one of the other guys who was speaking at the conference, and this is literally what he told the guy. I don't see what the big issue is with, trying, with telling people to try harder. This guy mentors young adults. I don't see what the issue is with telling people to just try harder. The real reason why people aren't overcoming sin is because they're not trying hard enough. That was his answer. And I thought to myself, this is child abuse. This guy should not be permitted to be within 25 miles of a child. Because like, this, is, this is not a healthy view of the plan of salvation. Just work harder. 
You're not working hard enough. That's why you're not overcoming. You're not working hard enough. Is that really the answer? I, I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a role we play, right? And Lloyd talks about striving, but what does that look like, okay? So this leads to some questions. What is the role of a mediator, and how do we exercise our diligent effort? Those are the two questions I have when I see this quote. Because when you see gnarly, hard statements from Ellen White, but then you see like these beautiful, uplifting, God's trying to save every soul and none is outside of his grasp. If you see seemingly two polar opposite scenarios, you need to ask yourself a question. Is that really what she's saying? And is she really two-sided? Or am I misreading what she said? And generally, when she has hard, strong statements, if you keep reading before and after, there's a form of balance to that statement. And, and it becomes clear what she's talking about. Another friend of mine, uh, he's actually a pastor at Penn State now, but he used to live here, Jack. He made a very interesting statement that I think one of his mentors told him that I really appreciated, that when you see strong or firm statements from Ella White, you would do well to figure out who she's talking to before you reload and shoot somebody else with that same bullet. Because many times those harder, stronger statements from her are her speaking to people who have a higher level of spiritual maturity and who should know better. Just in the same way that how Jesus talked with the public was different than how he talked to the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we don't, we don't want to do the research. So we find some hard, you know, gnarly, hard statement, and we go in on somebody. So we talk to a new believer with language that was never intended for a new believer. It was intended for somebody who had a higher level of understanding and a higher level of accountability. Yeah? So we need to make sure that we're understanding. And what is she actually saying, first of all? And second of all, who was this intended to? Right? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Which kind of begs the question, what would lead somebody, and I'm not making assumptions about people, but subconsciously something is going on in a person's mind that, that would cause them to talk in such a way and portray Ellen White and God in such a way. Clearly, they don't have a healthy view of God. Clearly, something is not right there because people shouldn't be regurgitating things in a different spirit than she would. In fact, when she was first given her calling, she would write the testimonies and send it to the pastor or the elder of the local church to then present to the person. But what happened is the people who got that letter were way harder on the person that she was trying to speak to than she would have been, and she stopped doing that. So she sent them letters directly because these, she felt that having the body that was with this person, right, that could minister to them regularly would be a better way to do it, but she found that that didn't work, so she stopped doing that because many times we are much harder on people than God would have been, and many times we are much more direct and firm with people than Ella White ever intended when we use her writings, which we need to kind of watch ourselves. So, and again, as Bogdan was saying, we're not downplaying what the principle says. We're wondering what's the tone in which it's said and where's the solution. Because if you read a quote and you're left feeling hopeless, clearly that's not the Spirit of God that spoke to you. Right? Because Jesus says, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. So if you're hearing condemnation through the Lord's mouthpiece, something's not right. And it's not her. Right? It's, it's the way in which I'm reading or receiving. Yes? That's totally different. Yeah. Condemnation is an experience of I'm not good enough, I'm cut off. Jesus calling you to take a stand that will lead people to not understand you, 
right, and to even maybe leave you or your family, it's a different situation. He was talking about the home scenario whenever you make a belief and stand for Jesus that your relationships are going to suffer uh, potentially because he said in John 15, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. The servant's not above his master. It's a good question, but it's a different, different context altogether. Yeah. So what is the role of a mediator? Well, first of all, God wants all to be saved and does what it takes for all to be saved. And you can say amen to that. You can murmur unexcitedly amen to that. That's fine too. So God wants all to be saved and does what it takes for all to be saved. And so you need to have that in your mindset when you're reading this quote, right? To then come to the right interpretation of what she says. So what's the role of a mediator? Because she says that we're going to lose access to a mediator, right? When the mediatory role of Jesus will cease. What does that mean? Well, the role of the priest was a mediatory role. Remember, the priest caught the blood, carried it up to the altar and sprinkled it on the veil. And so um, they carried it into the sanctuary to make atonement for you. So when Ellen White says that Jesus' mediatory role is going to cease, it's just a pragmatic, logical statement. She's not saying that Jesus ceases to love you, ceases advocating for you or caring about you. She's making a logical statement that a time is coming when sin can't go in because Jesus is cleansing it out. That's what she's saying. Do you see the difference there? Because we think there's no one for us anymore at all. We're on our own. That's not what she said. If you define the terms that she uses, you can come to the right conclusion. This process of transferring sin in, there's going to come a time when that can't go on anymore. And on top of that, when that time does come, God has sealed his people and they're not going to sin anyway. They would rather die than sin at this stage because the latter rain and the sealing of God's people has already transpired. And it's not that their nature changes, they're no longer capable of sin, but they have so determined themselves. Ellen White says that the seal of God is a settling into the truth. God has so settled these people into eternal realities that they would rather die than sin. And they're not going to need a mediator anyway. But that's not the way we frame this conversation, unfortunately. We make it sound like you better get it right because the day's coming when you're getting cast off. And that's not what Jesus is saying, nor would he ever say that. So it's important for us to kind of understand what is being said and what isn't being said in this situation. Okay? So in the context of Ellen White's statement... It logically follows that if the sanctuary is being cleansed, there will come a time when sin can't go in so that the cleansing can be finished. That's what's being said, okay? It's just kind of a logical statement. So so the transferring role ceases, but Jesus doesn't cease to love you or be your savior, okay? So you can maintain the principle of what is said, but also rightly apply it to your own experience and not end up in a situation where you feel that all of a sudden Jesus is staring at his watch and the train's leaving with or without you and you're on your own. Okay? Are you understanding? But part of the reason why we read that into that statement is because we're told in Revelation chapter 12, there's an accuser of the brethren who stands before our God accusing them day and night. So the devil's the one telling you, you stink, you're not good enough, you're a loser. God would never forgive you. Look at all the stuff that you've done in your life. How could God ever take you back? Those statements don't come from God. And Jesus isn't saying, finally, I can get away from these people. I'm checking out. You ever, had a, you ever worked at a shift like in retail or something and you just can't wait until your, your shift is over and you're leaving whether there's customers or not because you've had enough? Am I the only carnal person in this room? Okay right? Jesus is not doing that. He's not staring at his watch thinking, oh man, I can't wait to get out of here. These people are driving me crazy, right? He's, he's finishing the work of advocacy for us, 
right? But he's not done being our Savior or loving us or providing for us or so forth, right? The Spirit is the one that, that preserves and keeps us during this difficult season when the seven last plagues are falling. Jesus is sending the Spirit on our behalf. He's still working for us. He doesn't stop that. But it's very true that sin can't go in because he has to finish cleaning it. But remember, at that stage, God's people are sealed. They would rather die than sin, and they're not going to need someone to fill that mediatory role anyway. Yeah? Because sin transference is going to stop because you will stop living that life, right? Through the strength of His Spirit. So then the next question comes, how do we exercise our diligent effort? And so that's what we're going to kind of cover for the rest of this. And we won't finish today for sure, which is fine. So someone grab John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is that good news? So Jesus tells us, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And the original language is actually rooms. We'll talk about this in our second coming study. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, what? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now, it kind of leads to a question, because is Jesus the worst carpenter the universe has ever seen? Is that why it's taken over 2,000 years for him to come back? Do you think really that's what's going on right now? Clearly something else is at play, and I believe this is one of the reasons why we as Seventh-day Adventists probably have the clearest and best answer when it comes to the reason behind the tarrying time. Our understanding of what's happening in the sanctuary right now is what helps us to understand why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Otherwise, there's no answer for that. Does that make sense? It's something about the place that he's preparing for us. So Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven right now. Is there a form of physical preparation? I'm sure. But is that the main part of the preparation? I don't think so. Okay? He's preparing a place for you by preparing a place in your heart. So Jesus is preparing a kingdom for us by preparing a kingdom in us. This is what Jesus is doing. He's not just up in heaven getting rid of all the bad deeds that you've ever committed and confessed of, though he is doing that. But he isn't just concerned with your past. He's concerned with the pain that you feel every time you transgress in the present and with the shame that you're feeling for your transgressions in the present and for your tendency to keep transgressing in the future were it not for his intervention. You understanding? Jesus doesn't just want to get rid of the record of sin. He wants to change our hearts that self-sabotage and cause sin in the first place. Are you with me? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's trying to get to the root of the issue. That's exactly right. Sasha. Where it says the Spirit of God is going to be finally withdrawn from the world. So I was like, <laughs> what are we going to do? You know? 
Lord have mercy. Yeah. But here's the thing. So there, there's a work that the Spirit is doing, we're told in John chapter 16. There's other works that the Spirit does, and we'll talk about it in this, and we'll talk about it again in our Ministry of the Holy Spirit class later, because it's, it's a very important question. How do we work through what she says? The Spirit doesn't have just one work. He has multiple works. One of those works is in John chapter 16, where Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I'm leaving and going to my Father, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is now judged. So one of the works of the Holy Spirit is pursuing the lost and trying to point them to Jesus to respond. That work is what ceases. In the same way that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full in Genesis chapter 15. God is giving seasons of probation, but once people have fully hardened themselves, this is when it says, let him who is righteous remain righteous still. Let him who is wicked remain wicked still. That does not mean that the very same spirit that's sealing the people of God and guiding them and preserving them also stops doing his work. Do you see that? It's a great question you're asking. I think that's how we can parse through this. We kind of have this narrow view of what the Spirit is doing, and it's so much bigger than that. He's pursuing the lost while strengthening and saving and, and, and transforming the righteous. So there's one work that has to stop because they have said, I don't want you. And he eventually honors their decision when the door of probation closes. And he cannot be mediating for us. Jesus can't in, in the sense of transferring sin into the sanctuary because that work has to finish. But that happens only after he has sealed his people. We just don't talk about this stuff. And so people get so beat up and confused and discouraged because we make far too many assumptions, if we even know it ourselves, first of all. And I wonder that. Second of all, we make assumptions. People already know all that stuff. Just tell them what's expected. Yeah, but God never worked that way. God always communicates who He is before He communicates what He wants. It happens in the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is what I'm asking of you. And I'll even empower you to succeed. So God reveals who He is before He tells you what He wants. But that's not the way that we generally have preached the three angels' messages. We're preaching what God wants, and we're not empowering people to succeed. But she says that will happen. That through the preaching of the Revelation 14 message, people will be prepared to live lives of holiness. Well, who's talking about that? How many resources have you heard in Adventism that gave you a how to succeed in the things of the three angels' messages? Maybe that's why we're still here. Like what we talked about Saturday night. That's a great question. Do you have something else, Bogdan? Yeah, basically, what Doug is saying is exactly why I didn't, why I raised my hand when he said, who's been scared by this? Exactly. Because, you know, it's, it's freaky because, like, this whole time we're trying to learn how to trust Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and all that he's doing, and then all of a sudden, literally everything that we founded everything on is going to be gone. You know, I'm like, how am I supposed to do anything by myself? I'm literally told that I can't do anything by myself, you know, so... But then you're telling me I'm left to myself. Plus, Jesus says, uh, you know, um, I'll be with you till the end. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it was just like... This is why some of our critics, right, people who are really upset with Ellen White, Walter Ray, who wrote The White Lie, uh, Canwright, uh, D.M. Canwright back in Ellen White's day, there's another guy, um, I can't think of his name right now, but anyway, there are people who, who say the Adventist church is a bunch of kooks or a bunch of legalists, Ellen White wasn't a prophet. They'll say these things because they'll say, she says there's not going to be a mediator, but Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Desmond Ford went through this too. Desmond Ford was teaching there's no sanctuary in heaven and that Ellen White was not really inspired by the, by, you know, the gift of prophecy. There's no such thing as the investigative judgment. 
and so forth. And this is why. It's not because truth is to blame. It's because we've been so Christless in our handling of truth that people are rejecting something that isn't even true. We're to blame for that. We blame the people who leave and say, well, they were just crazy and didn't want to believe the truth. No, we gave them a Christless picture and they came to the most logical conclusion they could because we never showed them Jesus in the message. And this is, this is a challenge to each of us because when you are wrestling with the Adventist message and you seem to see a picture of Jesus that doesn't sound like what you've seen in Scripture, you have to ask yourself the question, am I misreading this or is the church wrong? And what other people do is they will just create a new theology to escape the tension, which is laziness, instead of wrestling with the text. But when we wrestled through the language of the text and we, we put into that quote the character of God that we know to be true, then we're able to come to the right conclusions. Does that make sense? This is what we're supposed to do, but we're lazy. We don't actually sort through things and wrestle with the tension. We just say, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't believe this anymore. I'm leaving. Or I'll just create a new theology where this accountability isn't present, and I don't have to feel so uncomfortable. That's what Des Ford did. He created a new theology and was teaching it at Adventist institutions. And there are pastors in the church today who were still leavened by his influence. The people who were training under him and, and swept in through this movement are people who are chaplains and pastors and teachers in our colleges today. And they kind of throw shade and kind of doubt, not everybody, but there are still people in our own institutions who kind of just are sour to this whole idea of the investigative judgment. It's because they never saw Jesus in this. Not that it's a bad teaching. It was mangled by the people who presented it. So Matthew, you talk about multiple statements made at your local church, right? People have a gnarly view of God and they have, they're basically serving out of a sense of duty, right? It's more of an appeasement-based religion than one that's, that's fueled by love, right? A faith that works by love. And, and it, they're not bad people. Most, most people in that situation have inherited that legalistic view from previous generations that rejected the 1888 message to begin with. This is a generational curse that we're dealing with because we rejected the most precious message. So we don't blame the people who say these things. We try to show the truth as it is in Jesus. We don't argue. Ellen White was not a fan of an argumentative approach. We present the truth as it is in Jesus. And I can testify to you as someone who's traveled all over this country, and for whatever reason, people around the world are listening to my sermons. I'm hearing messages all the time from people who for the first time in their life are finding peace and healing and freedom in the Adventist church. Why? It has nothing to do with me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But the gospel works. I, I baptized a lady three weeks ago who, for the first time in her life, finally realized that God forgave her and that she was fully forgiven. Radically changed. This woman's in her 60s, been in the church for years, and for the first time in her life, when we went through that whole God's love forgives, Haritza Mayafimai, I went through that message at this place in Ohio. Baptized the lady because she finally saw a different picture of God that she had never seen before. The gospel's lost in plain sight in Adventism. And this is one of the reasons why God has brought you here, I believe, is so that you can be ambassadors to set people free. Because when Jones and Wagner were preaching this message, people were finding legitimate freedom. Like, finally, I'm free. God actually loves me. This thing's actually doable. And there was severe emotional and spiritual healing that people were going through in hearing this message. Pentecost was happening again. And it was because of this. So how does this work? How is it that God's going to do this? We're told in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, 
how well received was that statement by the disciples? That it's, it's good news that I'm leaving you. They hated this idea because their entire hopes were wrapped up in a man who was this tall by this wide, who looked like this and talked like this. All of their hopes were wrapped around a physical human being. But Jesus is saying, if I don't leave, the helper cannot come to you. I'm sending you another helper. Right? I can help you right here. But the problem is when Jesus became a man, he laid down aspects of his divinity. And he never picked those back up. So Jesus can't be everywhere at the same time. He can't do that anymore. But the Holy Spirit can do that on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit can do for us what Jesus can't. He lived the life that we have not lived, but only the Spirit can make that a reality in your life. Okay, so it's good news that he's leaving. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We're told this in Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce. Through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, souls are led to find forgiveness of sins. Right? So when Jesus leaves and sends the Spirit to us in greater measure, this is part of the work that he's doing. Opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel and finding forgiveness of our sins. This is what God wants to do. So Jesus in his high priestly role is cleansing the sanctuary above of any record of our confessed sins. And he's using the Spirit to cleanse the temple of our hearts here below so that we can be ready to live without someone filling that mediatory role. Do you see that? These are the two things that Jesus is doing right now. Cleansing the record of, of the confessed sins above and using the Holy Spirit to empower and cleanse and heal us and empower us to overcome here below. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 that do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Okay, so we're promised the ministry of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower us to live the life that Jesus lived victoriously on our behalf. That's what the Spirit is doing for us. Okay, and so we're basically making a daily. Yeah. It's kind of like when, when you're recovering from breaking your legs and you're walking on crutches, that's him mediating for you. But he's empowering you to be able to walk on on your your own with him still being as your savior and your friend, but you don't have to use those crutches anymore. Well, you're always going to need them because you can't obey without him. So, yeah, you can't obey without him, but, but it's, it may be a brace that, inqui- that enables you to be able to walk, right? When you couldn't walk at all before, now you can, but with guidance and structure, right? Mm-hmm. So we're taking a daily trip through the sanctuary, right? We're confessing our sins. We're reconsecrating ourselves before God. We're spending time in his word and in prayer and in witnessing. And, you know, when you stumble along the way, what do you do? You go right back to the entrance of the sanctuary and you say, God, I confess this sin. And you reconsecrate yourself and you keep moving forward. We're taking a daily trip through the sanctuary service, um, as you see here, kind of moving in. And, but the end goal at the end of the day is to press beyond that veil and to be like Jesus. That's our goal, right? It's a journey. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime, right? We're going to read the full context of that quote, by the way. So the end goal is to press beyond that veil, but the closer we grow to God, the interesting thing we're told is it's going to be the more sinful we will feel. We're told that in Steps to Christ, right? That the more that we grow closer to Jesus, the more we recognize our own imperfections. But it's not to discourage us. It's to, it's to open our hearts to Him to go even deeper. Right? That's the purpose of it. He's not saying, oh, look at this. You thought you'd arrive? You ever like gone on a hike? And you thought that you reached the summit and then like the fog moves away and you realize you got like two thirds more to go. Um, it, what he's not saying, you know, that you think you've arrived and let me put you back in your place. 
what he's saying is there's a continual work of trust and opening up that we are going through as Christians and giving Jesus access to our heart, right? That's a continually growing process of deepening and maturing and so forth. So how do we get there and how does this change happen? Um, I heard your prayer in your closet last night and I wrote it down on this little slide here. For I know that it is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to change, but how to perform what is good, I don't know. I can't find. Oh, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from this body of death? You never prayed something like this? God, I know what you want, but I don't know how to get there. I'm never going to be good enough. I can't get anything right. Paul understood this. And again, we talked about this before. Do you think the Apostle Paul knew anything about shame? Someone who signed off on the death of Christians, who's beaten them and imprisoned them, fought militantly against Jesus Christ himself. Those were Jesus' words. You're fighting against me. You're persecuting me. You think the devil's going to give him a certificate of graduation? Congratulations. Hope your new chapter in life works out for you. We'll be praying for you. No. You better believe that guy was harassed all the time, nonstop, because of who he had been. And so as he's being constantly reminded of his weaknesses, he cries out to God for help. I know what you want from me, but I don't know how to get there. And oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is found in Romans chapter 8. Okay, and we're going to go through a lot of Romans 8 in this study. We won't finish it today. But we're going to go through a lot of Romans 8 because he gives the solutions to this problem. When we find ourselves being someone we wish we wouldn't, right? He uses this very interesting language. The very things that I wish that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I wish I wouldn't do, I can't stop doing. Right? This is basically what Paul is saying in Romans 7. And the answer again is found in Romans chapter 8, in the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to change. So, um, this is probably a pretty good stopping point um, before we go into the next section, because I don't want to start it and then not be able to finish in like eight minutes. So, are there any questions or thoughts on this so far? Has this made sense so far, as far as where we're going and what the issues at, at stake are? Are there any questions? Right. Like, if there was no sin in the camp anymore, well, then you don't got to do the sacrifice no more. Nothing has to die anymore. That's right. the end goal. So we're trying to get to, right? Exactly. So, so it's, just, it's just like anything you need to do is laziness or, or just complacency and just listening to, you know, listening to other people or not studying for ourselves, not making it our own, not looking into it, where we just, like, take it for, for what we've heard and we have, like, these blind spots or these, you know, Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm digging this. Like, this is definitely, like you said, this is heavy. Like, this is like, I'm just like scratching the surface. Like, yeah. There's so many more verses and things you plug in. And, yeah. 
So we're establishing the problem, we'll start to address the solution. We've clarified the problem. We still haven't talked about what the solution is for man, we're going to get there. But we've clarified what is and isn't being said. But I think part of the reason why it's so easy for us to just accept what we've been told is because we are already having sympathy for these voices of condemnation in our hearts. This is what makes it so dangerous, right? We already are prone to believe I'm a loser, I'm not good enough, God couldn't accept me, God won't love me. So when I hear a statement from the spirit of prophecy that has moral standards to it, or from the scriptures that has a moral standard to it, it's really easy for us to take the words that are meant to bring life and twist them to bring us the death that we feel that we deserve. There's a psychology to being a Christian. And there's a psychology to the spiritual warfare that we're engaging in. And it's going to require us, right, to do the diligent work of ensuring, are the voices that are in my head coming from God or not? Which is why we had that class in the first week of school. Shame and guilt and conviction and condemnation. Who's speaking when I hear these things? Because if I think I'm not good enough, and I'll never change, and I don't deserve to be here, I don't deserve to be a Christian, I don't deserve to do ministry, well, who's speaking there? Is that God? If God's called you to do ministry, then why would God tell you you're not good enough to do ministry? God already knew you weren't good enough, and He still chose to call you. It's not like He's surprised, like He puts you out in the field like, oh man, what a wimp, you know, like, never mind, go home, I'll find somebody. No, God knows that part of sharing what you receive from Him is what will make you into a person who will be effective in ministry. He sent the disciples out casting out demons while they're still arguing over who's the greatest. You think he didn't know that? Jesus is not sending you because you've arrived. None of us have arrived. He's sending you because he knows that in the going, you will be transformed. So not going is depriving you of transformation. So go. You'll find what you need whenever he's all you have and you have nothing to offer people. This is why so we get so caught up in our feelings when we have to go out on outreach. I can't go. I, my head's not right. Well, of course it's not right. The whole head is sick, Isaiah says. That's the nature of humanity. But the point is, when you go out there, well, I just, I just don't feel right. You know, I just don't feel spiritual enough. I don't have enough to offer to these people. You never did. It's when you go out there with nothing to offer people and Jesus shows up that your faith grows. So don't wait until you feel good enough to go. Go because he called you here to go. It was my day off. I wasn't here. But it's, it's true, right? Like, we, we were getting caught up in our feelings. Just go. Literally, you have the opportunity to take what little you have and share it with somebody else to bless them and to draw them heavenward. Why would you not want to be there for that? Like, seriously, why would you not want to be there when there's an opportunity for a human instrumentality to be used to point someone to Jesus? You're missing blessings. And you're not going to find a greater blessing staying at home reading your Bible than you will in going out and doing the work that God called you to do. Because all you're doing is reading, you're not doing. If all you're doing is reading, you're not doing, but God hasn't called you to just read. He's called you to do. And your doing will make your reading more effective. Right? So go. He will bless you. I assure you of that. And the things that you're learning and encountering here are going to make you an even more, mission, even more fruitful missionary because you're seeing the goodness of God. You're more convinced that if God thinks that highly of me, God thinks that highly of that person's door that I'm going to knock on today. I don't want to miss that for the world, right? Like, this is important. Are you understanding? So we're not Pharaoh. We're giving you opportunities to receive blessings. 
Like that's, that's what this is. So anyway, just some stuff to think about because those, those thoughts go through our head. I get it, guys. I know I've done this a time or two. I know what those thoughts are, but that doesn't mean those thoughts are true or helpful. Does that make sense? This is where kind of working through where they come from and what the fruit will be will let you recognize like, nah, God is not calling monks. God's calling servants and servants live, give, and die for the benefit of another. Take your time in the morning value that. That will set you up to succeed, but to remove yourself from the battle, to like more spiritualize yourself, doesn't really more spiritualize yourself. It's delaying the inevitable, right? Your, your best blessings will come in putting yourself out there for God and doing what He's called you to do. And so the three angels' messages give you confidence in the one that you're serving and the one you're witnessing for, don't they? We haven't, even finished. we haven't even finished the first angel's message yet, but hopefully we're seeing this is a God who's worthy of total allegiance. This is a God who's worthy of sharing with somebody else. And you can be the woman at the well. All I know is I was a mess and he loved me anyway, and I think he can change your life. If that's all you have to offer these people, that's enough. If you think you need to stay home and study a whole bunch, so then you know what to tell people. She didn't do that and she won a whole city. Have you ever won a whole city? You know what I mean? Like just... Take what, you, what, what little you have and use it. Multiply it, and you will be so blessed. I promise you. The days that I wanted to go to outreach the least were the days when the blessings were the biggest. Every single time. It's a conspiracy. I don't think the devil knows the future fully, but I think he just gets a sense that something is up here, and he starts swinging discouragement at us spewing fire, talking us off the ledge. He didn't even use attractive spiritual things. We had a guy a couple years ago, it was just like, he just wanted to sit in his room and study his Bible all day. But like, God didn't call you to sit in your room all day. He called us to make disciples, and that's not going to happen by avoiding people. You will have more encounters with God serving him, right, than just sitting and learning about him. And I'm not saying it's an either-or thing, but don't neglect the call because you feel that something else is going on. Like I, so those days when I didn't want to go to outreach were the days when the biggest blessings came. So I just pushed through. And it's interesting that all seven churches are given the same charge to him who overcomes, to him who endures, right? That, that's, and then he tells them the blessing that will come from that. If that's the charge he's given to all seven churches, I'm assuming that's the charge he's given to you because you're the church, so when we persevere, when we push forward, when we pick each other up and pray together for each other, when we see each other are struggling, instead of telling people to not go, encourage them to go in God's strength and go with them. And you'll find there's blessings there. I promise you that, guys. There are doors that you will hit today that will change people's lives. Guaranteed. Who, who doesn't want to be there for that? Like, that's amazing. The God of all people is choosing to use you to do something today. is amazing. So take advantage of it, right? And um, you, won't, you won't regret it. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for giving us an introduction to the first angel's message. We still have more to go, but we've been blessed already. I've been blessed, um, and I pray and hope that the students have been blessed too. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of fighting for us. I know some of us are discouraged and confused. There are things going on at home that we've not told anybody that are really stressing us out. Uh, there are financial things we're fighting that are stressing us out. There's internal discouragement and attacks we're dealing with that are trying to persuade us of things that are not true. I don't know the stories in this room, but I've been around enough to know what some of them can be. Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus and the power of the resurrected Christ that you would rebuke the devil as you did in Zechariah 3 and Jude 9. 
I praise you did in Matthew 8, Mark 1, and Luke 4 that you command all unclean spirits to be quiet, to come out and leave these dear souls alone. And I pray Psalm 143 that you would cause us to hear your loving kindness, for in you do we trust. Cause us to know the way in which we should walk, for we lift up our souls to you. And destroy all those who afflict our souls, for we are your servant. Fight for these dear souls. Bless them as they fight for you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.